the rain's coming down even harder now. And the fog's rolled in down below. And the clouds are low from up above. So here on the North Shore, I'm sort of the middle part of a sandwich of fog below and, well, clouds up above. But it's a beauty. There's few things I enjoy more than a rainy afternoon, somewhere with a view and a warm, tasty beverage, and nothing too much obligatory to do. So, such as is the case, I'm hunkered down here and going to read a little bit from Letters from Russia and see what else comes on up. And this is Postcards from Gravelly Beach, number 16. Now, Letters from Russia is this historical fiction piece I wrote last summer. And uh, if you haven't been following along with the earlier shows, it's uh, this guy is ostensibly a cobbler in Napoleon's army going into Russia in 1812, and he's writing letters back to his fiancée. But really what it is is discourse on love, war, uh, trade economics, personal responsibility, transparency, fascism, and uh, eh, a few other isms. The project itself, well, I really bound it up into, I wrote it as letters, really letters on paper with a pen. I made a printed archive, archival copy on vellum, bound the whole thing up into a big book and stuck in some different watercolors and sketches I'd made along with it. But uh, I believe from where I left off was uh, letter number four, so I'm hoping that's the case, and I'm going to jump right in here to letter number five. April 25th, 1812. Somewhere in Austria, en route to Prussia. My sweet Genevieve, when the corporal told me of a letter from Paris, I was overjoyed. Ah, to read the first words from you since that morning, which now seems so long ago. I remember you in daisy yellow dress blowing me kisses all the way until it disappeared. Me standing atop the carriage till you faded from view. Now I see you in my dreams and in my waking hours. Chestnuts, the colors of your hair, the deep endless lake blues of your eyes, your pouting lips breaking easily into laughter. Oh, for those days to come again and soon. Our love will snap us together over so many muddy miles. I, if you'll allow me, must admit that I value you as a friend as much as a woman, my lover, my wife-to-be. You are my confidant, my gentle lover and rambunctious friend. You are my comforting presence and make me feel loved and mighty. You, the memory of you, the dreams of you, remembering you each time I smell fresh lemons or see the daffodils growing by each stream we cross. You offer me reason to come home. You are my source of hope in these tumultuous times. Oh, but life is not so bad as we travel. I ride in the wagon with Maurice and Eugenio. We know we are fortunate and work hard even en route. The wagon has heavy cloth sides and a canopy to protect our supplies, and we often stop away from most of the other troops so as to enjoy the countryside. I've taken to sketching and using Eugenio's watercolors. He paints in oils, but allows me to watch him with my good-natured, I hope, uh, ramblings. I'll enclose a few of my attempts to give you a sense of the local environment. We move quickly through villages of only a few shops and houses, across fields of wheat with farmers looking much the same as home. A couple of oxen, a small barn, chickens, vegetables. They look on, deciding how to feel, it seems. Their home and environment are important to them, no matter who sits in power. It is their surroundings and home, more than homeland or king, that they would fight for. Let us hope that they are allowed in peace. We should all be so lucky, all of us, I mean, 
to have a piece of land that we reap the whole of our labors from, free to exchange our efforts for a result of our choice without encumbrance or malice. I hope this is what our revolution brings. Always, Henri. May 25th, 1812. Somewhere in Poland, en route to Warsaw. Chez Genevieve. Today is the third rainy day in a row and heaviest yet. You know I tend to light the overcast days with promise of rain and the smells that follow. And even these days, I quite like the pattern and drama of nature. The troops grumble and don't share, they don't share my comfort, as unlike most, of course, I ride in the wagon assigned to our small unit. In fact, as I write, I ride on the front board with Maurice, who I mentioned earlier. He drives the horses and I hunker down trying to keep my notes to you dry, aside from my tears. I am kidding somewhat, but I admit my longing to be entwined with your long white fingers, watching your tiny, almost round ears bounce as you laugh. You are to me the essence of the modern woman, free to be, strong and taking the effort to educate yourself rather than idly gossiping in salons with boorish and trite crones who act as though they alone run the republic. But you, my sweet, not only do you thrill me with your beauty, but also your humor, the way you make me laugh no matter my malaise, the way you instinctively know how to make me whole in spirit, to believe in our chances, ours and our worlds, France's and our corner of Paris, my shop, your school, the museums, the theaters, the libraries, the cafes. As promised, for your request, I will include more observations of the day-to-day -day routine of military life. As you know, my role is unique and my duty not typical of these men, but it being what I know, and for that matter, no one else knows my experiences, I'll put forth a few notes to try to show you my moving world while the images are still fairly fresh, like blank paper. First, I am surprised by the quick pace and progress by which we move across the countryside. The marches are long, but the soldiers in supply caravans, etc., seem to move as a single unit, with a sort of collective consciousness moving the head. Of course, there are orders and officers and marshals directing the flow on a specific schedule. But from my vantage point, I feel the army would move on its own volition and end up in the same place at about the appointed time, without any direction. You could conjecture a comparison to water finding a mountain drainage or their heart pumping blood, but I will leave such consideration to you. Next, the sheer size of moving this many men to do battle elsewhere seems like an unproductive effort considering the expenses and, well, the effort required. I can't help but wonder how this vast number of men will be needed for a battle, and how no other option was devised that would eliminate this parade of lost potential. How could this massive swarm be put to better use building some device or method to better humankind? Do such advances in science or design of mechanism not spirit liberal reforms the way a revolution might? I think that leisure and time to learn begets the seed of revolutionary thought. The method of this revolutionary action, however, must be chosen with a sense of what is best for a greater number of people. With this in mind, we should seek to enter as friends if we hope to benefit from the great cost of the lives already expended. This leads to a third brief topic of the wisdom of the blockades of the British goods at ports in the greater French Empire. Any parent will tell you that as soon as you instruct a child not to do something immediately, they wonder how they might do this condemned action. When ports are closed, several things occur. One, a black market develops for English goods, whether brought in by English boats in quasi-secrecy or exchanged offshore onto local ships. Two, 
The closure of ports, Napoleon's in this case, leaves a gaping hole in which his resolve and power can be tested. The moral sentiment can erode and change flow quickly when people are denied items to which they are accustomed to, or denied the freedom to exchange their labor, in form of goods, with whom they choose. The point I don't mention is the boost to the sanctioned economy. You see, providers in France and its environs may well see a temporary increase in demand, but this is a panacea, not a cure, and as artificially supported, will collapse. To close my observations, I suggest that open trade in goods results in increased knowledge, understanding, and communication, ultimately resulting in, hopefully, peaceful progressive reform. As ever, Henri. Well, there's a couple more letters from Russia. We're about a third of the way all the way through that, but if you're dying to read on or follow along, the whole text is available as a PDF at uncleweed.net. Hey, so next up, I'm going to read from Hemingway's from For Who the Bell Tolls. Now, I'm not a huge Hemingway fan. I find him a little bit uh, clunky, and he kind of seems to be a little bit in love with his own way of doing things. But that's not to say that he didn't have a tremendous impact in short fiction and all that. And I respect what a lot of he, he did in that he had to separate himself as a person from himself as a writer because when you're writing about experiences you don't know how much of your own life to reveal and also how much of your acquaintance's life to hijack as it were and how thick of a veil to put between those various personas so it's something that he certainly uh, uh, and famously worked against and he's called himself or his alter egos all sorts of names anyway this is uh, I try to keep some sort of thematic, well, thematic theme through these little programs I make, whether it be geographical, stylistic, or some sort of sensibility within the text. But this, and this one sort of seems to fit with the letters from Russia, because it's a little bit about love and a little bit about war. Chapter 13. They were walking through the heather of the mountain meadow and Robert Jordan felt the brushing of the heather against his legs, felt the weight of his pistol in its holster against his thigh, felt the sun on his head, felt the breeze from the snow on the mountain peaks cool on his back, and, in his hand, he felt the girl's hand firm and strong, the fingers locked in his. From it, from the palm of her hand against the palm of his, from their fingers locked together, and from her wrist across his wrist, something came from her hand, her fingers and her wrist to his, that was as fresh as the first light air that moving toward you over the sea barely wrinkles the glassy surface of a calm, as light as a feather moved across one's lips, or a leaf falling when there is no breeze, so light that it could be felt with the touch of their fingers alone. But that was so strengthened, so intensified, and made so urgent, so aching, and so strong by the hard pressure of her, their fingers, and the close-pressed palm and the wrist that it was as though a current moved up his arm, filmed, filled his whole body with an aching hollowness of wanting. With the sun shining on her hair, tawny as wheat, and on her gold-brown, smooth, lovely face, and on the curve of her throat, he bent her head back and held her to him and kissed her. He felt her trembling as he kissed her, and he held the length of her body tight to him and felt her breasts against his chest through the two khaki shirts. He felt them small and firm, and he reached and undid the buttons on her shirt and bent and kissed her. And she stood shivering, holding her head back, his arm behind her. Then she dropped her chin to his head, 
and then he felt her hands holding his head and rocking it against her. He straightened, and with two arms around her, held her so tightly that she was lifted off the ground, tight against him, and he felt her trembling, and then her lips were on his throat. Then he put her down and said, Maria, oh my Maria. Whew, that was some saucy Hemingway there. That was a little similar to the passage from James Joyce's Ulysses I read last program, on account that that was just one paragraph. I think uh, Hemingway broke that up into maybe three sentences, so it was a bit of a mouthful there. A bit breathy, wouldn't you say? Anywho, with that for whom the bells tolls, on another episode of Postcards from Gravelly Beach, this was number 16. Next show, I'm going to play a piece read by someone else. Indeed, the famous and extremely talented Mr. John Kearney reading Robert Burns. I'm really excited. It's a fantastic piece, and I'm really excited that he's allowed me to play it. This show was completely and exclusively brought to you by a fantastic word, ephemera, which is something that is transitory and without lasting significance, or a range of collectible items that were originally designed to be short-lived. This would be tickets, letters maybe, labels, tags, notes, receipts, ephemera.